History Between the Cracks. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Dan Weaver, publisher and editor of AlbanyApple.com, has published a book of 60 of his local history columns, most of which first appeared in the Amsterdam Recorder. The book is called Between the Cracks, Forgotten Stories of Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Valley. It can be ordered through Amazon. Dan Weaver is proprietor of The Bookhound and sells books online. He writes political and historical uh, columns for the Recorder newspapers of Amsterdam. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Well, thank you for having me on, Bob. I wanted to start out with a story that you're personally involved in. I think I've read it maybe when you first published it. And each time I read it, I laugh out loud when I get to your reaction when you open the crate. But you worked once for the uh, firm Coleco, which was a big Amsterdam employer back in the 1980s. And uh, what happened when you got another shipment from China? Well, I worked there five and a half years, and um, I worked on the dock a lot of the time. And there was one day where a crate came, and it was, you know, most of the time the goods arrived in cardboard cartons, but this was an actual wooden crate. So Eddie Bubniak and I, Eddie worked on the dock too, we took the crate apart, see what was in it, and then we looked and we looked at each other and started laughing, and I said, Who's going to buy an ugly thing like that? And, and what it was was a proto—it it was a prototype of the uh, mass-produced Cabbage Patch Kid, Cabbage Patch Doll. They had been made by hand prior to that and cost like a hundred dollars a piece. But Coleco was licensed to mass-produce them, and Eddie and I saw the first one that came, and we were shocked. And, and I thought nobody would buy this, which was a foolish thing to say on my part, but. Uh, because it, you know, went on to become very, very popular. I mean, who knew? I mean, very, very popular. It really, uh, at least temporarily, boosted uh, Coleco's fortunes, including in Amsterdam, even though the the doll is not made in Amsterdam, right? It's made in China. Right, right, yeah. A lot of Coleco's stuff was made in China. Uh, so there was some assembly done in Amsterdam, but a lot of times it was simply boxing things, quality control, testing things. And with the Cabbage Patch doll, they were flown over here. They, Coleco, in order to keep up with the demand, was hiring seven Boeing 747s to bring them over. And that's something. And again, they, they sold uh, tons of those dolls. I remember my daughter, uh, we got my daughter one, and as I recall, you got a you got a birth certificate with it or something like that? I mean, the whole premise yes. of the, what was it? It was an adoption. Exactly. And also, at least initially, you were supposed to get a birthday card every year, too. But, you know, obviously that <laughs> that didn't last because Coleco went out of business. And um, while they were in business with the Cabbage Patch doll, I think, I don't know if it's in this story that's in your new book or not, or this part of it, but there was a concern on the part of Coleco management. I mean, you were the people, you know, you the workers of Coleco handling these dolls. They were afraid that some of them might go out in your lunch pail or something, right? Well, I've heard stories. I 
I don't know how true they are, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I do know that people did steal things there. Like, you know, many businesses, there's, there's a certain amount of theft. I heard stories where people would drop them out of the windows of the upper floors of Building 6 to Confederates who are waiting below to take them and, and then sell them or whatever. And didn't they actually, or did they, or is this just an old wives' tale, uh, put up screens or something, you know, to catch the dolls in case somebody were to try to throw one out the window? That I don't know about that, but it, it's it's possible. What happened? I think you know, know this story for you know quite well. I mean, again, you worked there. Um, Coleco, when the Cabbage Patch doll came, and even before, was doing pretty well in in Amsterdam. In fact, employed, I think you've said, as many people as the carpet industry did? Yeah, at, at, their, high, at their peak, Coleco was employing 5,000 people, which I think was about what the two carpet mills employed at their peak. Hmm. But what happened to them? Well, a couple things. One, they sold off some productive uh, lines of goods that didn't bring in. They, they weren't highly profitable, but they were they were always profitable. Uh, for example, their tricycles. Uh, tricycles are a perennial sa- sale. You know, k- kids always want tricycles. Another line they sold off was their pool line, and and then instead of you know. They put all their money into one basket. Well, actually, two baskets. One was the Cabbage Patch doll, which was only a fad. You know, after a couple of years, sales just tanked because kids were on to the next fad. And mm-hmm. then they put uh, all their money into the Atom computer, the ColecoVision and the Atom computer. The ColecoVision did fairly well, but the Atom computer really failed because of it had many uh, had many issues. Plus, other companies were coming out with their computers, and they were better equipped to produce computers than Coleco was. So uh, the fact that, that they continued to produce Cabbage Patch dolls and, and put all their money into that, even after the fad was, was dying, and putting all their money into the Atom computer, which, which was very flawed, a very flawed computer. Yeah. Between the Cracks is the book, Forgotten Stories of Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Valley. Um, for those who maybe know both of us, I mean, we're, we're sort of in, in the same field here. We're like two competing uh, industries. Right. I was going to say, it's uh, sometimes I, I go to write something and I find that you've already written on it and, and uh, I don't want to steal your thunder. So if I write on the same topic, I try to find something that you haven't written about and on that topic and write about that, you know, so, yeah. or like, and, like, uh, you just did a story on Wayne Lennox new book and, um, and, uh, you know, it's something that I feel I probably should do, do something on too, but I'll try to do it in a way that's not, uh, imitative of you. <laughs> sure. And, and me too. And also I, I would have to say that, I mean, you're a very you're very good at the at the research, and unfortunately, I make mistakes. I mean, we all do. And I found one in reading this, or at least one, um, of talking about. Maybe, maybe I'll skip to this as the next uh, topic. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, the founder of Amsterdam, uh, right. Amsterdam, New York, Albert Vetter. I mean, there's a more proper Dutch way to pronounce that, but I fell for the story 
that uh, he supposedly, you know, that Joseph Hegeman came up first and was going to build in what is now Amsterdam, but then uh, Vetter com- comes in and s- steals his place. And I guess there's really no um, basis for that. Well, no. And, and I mean, I, I've doubted the story for a long time. And then when I looked at the way property was transferred during the colonial period, it was done in many respects similar to today. You had to have a deed. Um, so the idea that someone could come up and pile a pile of rocks and claim a, claim land, that seems more like uh, you know the Oklahoma land rush or something like that, where you could you could do something like that. You could claim a piece of land. Whereas but, in colonial New York, you had to, and, and the Revolutionary Era and early Republic, you had to actually buy the land and get a deed and all that. So. Mm-hmm. And also in your new book, you tell the tale that um, what is now Kirk Douglas Park along the Chuckton under Creek, it's near the city uh, police station, but that's where Albert Vetter built his mill? Right. A, a lot of uh, history say that, you know, he, he built his mill or founded the, the, well, what we'd call the city now, where the Chuctanunda met the uh, Mohawk River, but actually he was upstream more, which makes a lot more sense because that's where the water comes down over the falls, the various little falls up throughout the Chuctanunda Creek and provided the power for his mills. So his... So to the best of our knowledge, and looking at the 1807 map by Gushney, James Gushney, um, you can see that his mill was up about where the Kirk Douglas Park is today. There were actually two mills, a sawmill and a grist mill there. Okay. And I was interested to read in your book, I guess I'd, I don't know if I ever put it into print, but I'd always assumed that as with some other people who settled in the Mohawk Valley after the revolution, that he was an, a veteran of the American Revolution. But again, there's no evidence for that? No. The only ev- there, there was an Albert Vetter who was a Revolutionary War veteran. There were, there's so many Albert Vetters. That, um, I've been up to the archives, and there's, there's a book up there on the Vetter genealogy. And the number of Alberts is just uh, unbelievable. And it's, and it's hard to keep them apart. But the Albert Vetter, who was a, a Revolutionary War veteran, ended up out in the town of Root, and he was still collecting his pension as of, I think, 1840 census. He died in the 1840s. But our Albert Vetter, you know, he did have experiences during the Revolution because he was living in Old Fort Johnson. He rented that for at least two years, and he was captured in a raid that uh, some Indians and Tories came down to the into the valley. They wanted to grab some people for intelligence purposes, and they grabbed Albert Vetter when he was making his way from his house down to um, Guy Park Manor or, or Daniel Klaus's house. He was on his way there, and they grabbed him. But during the night, when everyone was asleep, he managed to uh, untie himself and escape. So he didn't end up in Canada, which is where he would have been taken if he if he hadn't escaped. Yeah. And also, since we're talking about early settlers, you have an interesting story in the new book about the Sixberries. That's uh, that's a family name, Sixberry. Yes. 
Yes, the six berries, what happened is, in order to protect the Schenectady frontier, England sent over a, a number of soldiers, English soldiers, and they ended up marrying in to the Dutch people in the area, although the Dutch kind of looked down their noses at these English soldiers. And one of them was Manasseh Sixberry, one of the soldiers, and his son William ended up settling in what is now the east end of Amsterdam. He probably uh, didn't have the right to settle there. He was probably, uh, what do you call it, when people, uh, you know, they, they squat. He was a squatter. Okay. Um, because that was part of the Cateros patent, which hadn't been adjudicated yet, and he had really no right to be there. But squatting was uh, something that a lot of early settlers did. And like when Sir William Johnson came, he tried to turn his all his squatters into taking, he tried to get them to take leases out, and he was successful in most cases, rather than just drive them off the land. But William Sixberry was probably the first Englishman, the first white person to settle in the area that we now call the city of Amsterdam. And he and lived only, to a very... I found that, I'm sorry. No, was he lived age. to a very old age? Um, I'm not really sure. His his uh, one of his relatives, Robert, lived to a very old age. He lived to be 102. Okay. William, if if it's the same William that I found uh, a uh, death certificate of, or will I should say will, not death certificate. He lived to be 92, but I'm not 100 percent sure it's the same William Sixberry. And the only reason I found out about the Sixberries is I I discovered online an old map. And in a lot of these old maps, there weren't that many settlers, and they would draw a little uh, house, and then they would put the settler's name next to it. And that's the only way I found out about, or initially how I found out about William Sixbury. If we could go back to the vetters for a moment, uh, you also sure. put in the uh, book uh, that uh, one of the vetters, Volkert, had a house on... Green Street in Amsterdam that's still there? Yes. Initially, his house was on Market Street. And it, uh, it, when the Greens, you know, the Vetters owned all of Amsterdam initially, and then a lot of their land on Market Hill was bought by the Green family. And when the Greens decided to put some uh, factory buildings and a couple of nice mansions on Market Hill, that Volker Vetter's house was moved over to Green Street. Therefore, it survived urban renewal and is probably the only building in Amsterdam that was a part of the original Vettersburg. Hmm. How far back would that, when was that built, do you think, or do you know? Well, it, I don't know for sure. Uh, Jerry Snyder and I did a lot of research on it, and we haven't been able to 100% prove it, but it must have gone back to uh, prior to 1800. And it's probably the oldest building in Amsterdam other than Guy Park Manor. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Jerry because it's like there's a history community in the Amsterdam area. I know I've got I've gotten a lot of information from Jerry over the years and from uh, Jackie Murphy and from uh, you and from Rob Van Hasselen and, and all the, a lot of people have are interested in local history. Right. 
Yes, there is a, a good community. There, there, I've never seen a place like Amsterdam as far as interest in local history. Um, the I'm sure you're familiar with the city directories and the immense amount of information that you can glean from those. As a bookseller, I've never had a problem selling an Amsterdam city directory. They go as soon as I get them. Get them. But I've <laughs> yeah, had right. them for other cities. I've had them for other cities, and they just sit around, sit around, and and it's hard to sell them, which just well, underscores for me the in, the the uh, unique interest that people in the city of Amsterdam have about their history. In fact, maybe one example of that is the first time I heard of. Michael Sinquanti is when he started writing history books about people's birthdays in Amsterdam, and now he's the mayor. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you've also got some really interesting stories from more recent times. Of course, time's marching on. Uh, one in particular yeah. I'm fond of, and, and I'm glad you wrote about it because it was something I remember from growing up in Amsterdam seeing this man or kind of interacting with him, and that was Derby. And it seemed to me at some point we used to call him Blind Derby, who was uh, at the post office where he had a concession stand selling newspapers and candy and so forth. What's the what's the story of, of Derby? Well, Derby wasn't born blind. He was born in 1913. But when he was 14 years old, he and some guys were... Uh, jumping railroad cars, as boys sometimes did, especially in the old days. And he ended up falling off one of the railroad cars, and it, da- it must have hit his head. He, it damaged the optic nerve. Uh, he also injured his leg in falling. He eventually went blind, and he walked with a limp the rest of his life as well because of, of the injury to his leg. But he went blind. He was the first person in Amsterdam to have a, a guide dog, a seeing eye dog, they called it back then. And, and he, he was set up by the state to sell newspapers and candy and things like that. The state uh, provided the money for his newsstand, and he initially was uh, ensconced in City Hall where he sold his, his, his wares but eventually moved to the post office because there was more traffic there. Mm. And I believe you say that this was something that was fostered by the man who was mayor for a long time during the Depression, Arthur Carter? Yeah, Arthur Carter was a big supporter of Derby and one of his regular customers. And let's go to, I should have asked you this off the air, but let's go to his last name. I believe it would be pronounced Showick, or I knew... Uh, somebody named Shoek, or they had that spelling when I went to high school. But how do you say mm-hmm. his uh, his last name, or what is his last name? Well, his his name is spelled W S Z O L E K. Now I knew someone with that name, and they pronounced it Zalik. So okay. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I guess it's like a lot of names. There are people who pronounce well, maybe not a lot of names, but there are names where people spell, pronounce them differently. Different people have the same last name and pronounce it in right. a different way. There were some stories connected with Derby at the post office. He was, uh, sometimes people would shortchange him. Yeah, a couple times people gave him an English penny. And as you know, an English penny is, is made. I believe it's made out of copper. Anyway, it's made out of one of the cheaper metals. But at that time, it was a very large coin. And they pawned it off of 
up on him as a either I forget now either as a fifty cent piece or a dollar coin. And then another times while he was gone at night, uh, he would leave like four thirty in the afternoon or so. Somebody came in and, and somehow broke into his uh, box and stole all his money. Not everyone was considerate of the fact that he was handicapped. But it's he was very popular, as I say, and very well known. Yes, he was, and uh, he, you know, I didn't really come to Amsterdam until 1977, and he was still he was still around. So he always stuck in my head because I I left for a while and came back in 1978, and uh, all of a sudden he wasn't in the post office anymore. Yeah, I guess he had huh. retired that year. And he has passed he, away. Yeah, he passed away on New Year's Day, 1985. His um, niece still lives in Amsterdam, and she actually had given me some of the information about him. For example, why he was named Derby. Well, when he went to New Jersey to get his first CNI dog, he came back not only with a dog, but with a new hat, and the hat was a Derby. So <laughs> somehow he got stuck with that name because of wearing a Derby hat. I have two other things I'd like to get in, at least one. I was fascinated by the story in your, your new book, Between the Cracks. And I never heard about this guy, even though I was raised as a Methodist, and that's part of the story here. Um, a man named Essek William Kenyon. Uh, who was he, right. and what did he do? Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, I don't know if people are interested in how we come about our stories, but my son stumbled on him somewhere, and he said, Dad, you know, you might want to do something on, on this guy. Well, it turned out he... He was born in Hadley, but the family moved to Rocks, uh, Rockton, Rock City, it was called then, which eventually became part of Amsterdam. They moved there when he was a young man, and he went to work really early. A very young man, he went to work in the, I believe it was the carpet mills in, in Rock City is where he went, because he's, he talks in one place about uh, being next to a loom. Uh, and somebody invited him to a Methodist church service, that was being held actually on a, on, on a weekday night and they were being held in the schoolhouse in Rockton and he went there and I believe it was the second night he went to the services. He became converted and decided that he was going to become a minister and he did and he be, really became quite well known, had a couple big churches and also started uh, two schools. One of the schools that he started uh, became part of what is now Gordon College in New England. Hmm. And he was a very popular and prolific writer, correct? Right. He wrote a lot of books, and even when he died, he had 12 books in preparation to be published, and his books are still in print today. This big thing was the power of positive thinking, which, you know, he wasn't the only one involved in that. Some of the better-known people are, you know, Dale Carnegie, from a secular point of view, and Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller. Uh, today you have Joel Osteen. All of them were proponents of this power of positive thinking, and E.W. Kenyon was one of the people that fostered that early on. And a lot of the people who preach it today, or even the secular people who who aren't, you know, who who believe in this power of positive thinking, they're in, they were influenced by Kenyon. And he even had a scandal 
as I recall. Um, right. His second wife sued him for divorce, and she claimed that he was unfaithful to her. And that, that by that time, he was out in California, but that kind of mm-hmm. undid of what he had done in Los Angeles. He had a big Baptist church there, and he had to step down, and then he went to the Pacific Northwest, started all over again. Wow. And, you know, was quite successful there as well. Yeah. America, what a wonderful sort of like land. Jimmy Swaggart of his day, I guess. Essex William Kenyon. And then there's an, one other thing. I think we can get this one in. Um, and I guess I knew you'd written about it, but until the book came, I didn't really read the story to find out how. What is Debbie Reynolds, or what is her connection to Amsterdam, the famous actress? This is another story that I wouldn't have found out about except for a chance comment by a friend of mine, Tom Frick. He just happened to mention when Debbie Reynolds died that his sister had worked at Carl's Shoes in Amsterdam. So I did more research and found out that Debbie Reynolds' second husband, Harry Carl, he had a big shoe empire. I forget how many stores now. They were all west of the Mississippi, though. So he decided he wanted to start selling shoes east of the Mississippi, and he chose Amsterdam as his distribution center for eastern United States. And he uh, leased one of the buildings from Haskell, Mohawk Carpet Mills, to have his distribution center in. And Debbie Reynolds used to come to New York all the time with him to open up new shoe stores or new shoe departments in department stores like a Family Bargain Center. Um, now, I said in the article that there was no evidence that she ever came to Amsterdam, but I've a couple old-timers have talked to me since then and said that she did come. They remember her being here. They remember her going into Tumen's across the street from where her husband's distribution center was and asking for a drink. So maybe she did come here. How about that? And also, I think you put this, or I found it in Wikipedia, but I think it's your story that Debbie Reynolds' late daughter, Carrie Fisher, was not a big fan of Harry Carl. No, she wrote a book called Shockaholic, came out, oh, I forget, maybe 10 years ago or so. And uh, she really ripped into Harry Carl. She blamed him for her mother losing all of her money. She said basically he ended up using all her money. And I conjectured a little bit, wondered whether some of her money was used to launch this distribution center in Amsterdam. Uh, I don't know for sure whether it was or wasn't, but maybe it was. But uh, as with the carpet mills, the, his shoe company's gone now? Yes. it. He was in Amsterdam. The distribution center in Amsterdam was here for about 10 years. And uh, some newspaper articles said that Carl Shoes went out of business before he died. But from what I was able to discover, it's, it remained in business for a couple of years after he died and then, then went out of business. Well, Dan, it's a great book. I uh, People will enjoy it, and I certainly hope you sell a lot of them. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for having me on your program. Dan Weaver is the author of Between the Cracks, Forgotten Stories of Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Valley. The book can be ordered on Amazon, but th- they can also order it from you, correct? Sure. 
Yeah, I I just got some a box of them in the mail yesterday. So. All right. So Dan Weaver writes historical and political articles for the Amsterdam Recorder and be can be found online at albanyapple.com and, and other places, albanyapple.com. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.